0: So today we take a detour, a diversion on our journey with Jesus to the far side of the lake, to the other side of Lake Galilee. The strap line that Keith gave for the talk today is changing lives, which is particularly apt on this, the second day of Lent. Because over the last few days, worldwide, many people, even those with little or no faith, will have decided to make just some small change to their lifestyle, their diet or their daily routine. For Christians, of course, it's supposed to be something to help us to focus our hearts and minds towards God, something to encourage a closer walk with Christ. But for most of us, let's face it, it's not that spiritual or that special. It's more of a remedial opportunity for a do-over of a lapsed New Year's resolution or um, something that's no more of a spiritual fast than a 5-2 diet or a sugar-free spring. But giving up something can act as a useful prompt or reminder. It can give us extra time or space for reflection and prayer. But it shouldn't be mistaken as an opportunity to try to win favour with God by painful or public sacrifice. I was talking to somebody about Lent yesterday and they were asking what I was giving up for Lent. And I've not told anybody and I'm going to tell you at the end of this uh, talk. But they were saying what they'd given up and discussing it with others... And they said this which surprised me. They said, it doesn't count unless it hurts. But Lent is not really supposed to be an opportunity to win favour with God through sacrifice. But I wonder if you've decided to give up something this Lent. And if you haven't, perhaps I can make some suggestions or recommendations. These are the top five things that people gave up for Lent, according to surveys, in 2016. At number five were sweets, sugar and cakes. Sugar, as we know, is the new fat, and so people have decided to give up sweets, sugar, or cakes for Lent. Still ahead of that is the old fat, which is meat. Classically, of course, people give up meat on a Friday and and replace that with fish, but now people are giving up meat for the entire period of Lent. Above that, we come to the start of the the serious uh, addictions and alcohol. People will give up alcohol one day a week. Uh, Maybe after dry January, they'll carry that through all the way through Lent, giving up alcohol. The real drug, of course, is tea uh, and coffee. Uh, Now, I noticed before the service, not everyone here has given up tea and coffee, but some people will give up one cup a day, one day a week, or tea and coffee throughout the uh, 40-something, and there are a few extra days in Lent for technical reasons that we'll talk about another time, uh, days of Lent. Anybody would like to guess what the number one thing people give up? It's hugely sacrificial, it's terribly damaging to your life. Um, What the number one thing people give up for Lent is? No, smoking used to be number three. But yes, it is the deep and painful sacrifice of chocolate. These are the most popular ones, but there are more modern ones and perhaps more sacrificial ones. So people will give up social media or television. They'll come off Facebook. Uh, People are hoping Donald Trump might give up Twitter for Lent. (laughs) They give up complaining or gossiping. I don't need you to do that for 40 days, but if for the next 24 hours you could could not complain or gossip, that would help me greatly after this talk. Uh, I had a choice of what I put from the list on this one, uh, but I knew Zoe was going to be here this morning. Uh, So because I knew she was here, I put this one up there of shopping, uh, and I didn't put the one next to it, which was sex. Uh, makeup, people will change their look. They will decide to, to not wear makeup one day a week uh, or change the way they dress, to give up a certain kind of clothing or only to wear one particular outfit or one kind of clothing to act as a reminder. And the last one of these, perhaps by show of hands, uh, who's given up deodorant uh, for Lent? Actually, don't, yes, you've made your point already. So modern Lent, then, is a triumph of these kind of superficial things over spiritual things. It's about stirring up sympathy or attracting attention. It's just another excuse to sculpt and cleanse our bodies or to show off on Facebook about our self-restraint. But Lent is not an exercise for the body at all, but the soul. It's about prayerful surrender rather than achievement. It's about relief from the hyperactivity of the world, not another item for your to-do list. We're called to relax and reflect in the presence of God, not to force the pace or forge a path with our own efforts. This list of Lent sacrifices focuses on us, But our focus should be kept not on what we want to give up, but on the goodness, the greatness and the grace of the one we seek to gain. And so our passage today contains, I believe, a much more radical and life-changing suggestion for something guaranteed to make that difference if we give it up this Lent. But I'll come back to that later. So this week's journey seems at first to be a simple day trip, a brief diversion or detour to the wrong side of the lake. If you rewind to the start of Mark chapter 4, we read that the crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge... So it's the end of this day, of this block of teaching from a boat, that in verse 35, Jesus asks his disciples to take him to the other side of the lake. Now to cross the lake is a journey of 13 miles, but it's not the distance that made his request remarkable. As we heard last time, any boat journey was known to be hazardous, there were dangerous storms on the lake, and to cross in the middle of the night, would have, they would have been in grave danger. But it wasn't their navigation or the meteorology which was important. You see, some journeys are about much more than the distance travelled or the dangers faced. From Knightsbridge to Tower Hamlets, from Fifth Avenue to Harlem, from Linfield to Burgess Hill, from the light to the darkness. Jesus has asked them to take him not so much to the other side of the lake as to the wrong side of the lake. From Jewish to Gentile territory, he was crossing a boundary and a border that anyone making that journey or hearing this story would recognise. Anyone that is, except for Jesus. So in the middle of the lake, and the middle of the night, a fierce storm blows up. And once the disciples have stopped panicking and wake Jesus, they witness a first miraculous demonstration of his power and authority, this time over nature. And this is the start of a series of four consecutive miracles, and also the introduction to our theme. For as the storm is stilled, Jesus rebukes his disciples. In Mark 4.40, he says, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And so this morning I want to talk about that precarious balance between fear and faith. We heard it in our reading last time, It is I, don't be afraid. And we see it played out in four miracles in quick succession here in Mark 4 and 5. We'll look at the Gerasene reading in a minute, but after that, Jesus heads immediately back to the right side of the lake again. And there, mobbed by the crowd, he encounters a woman who's both physically sick and ritually unclean. In mortal fear of the judgment of the crowd, she reaches out in secret to Jesus. Mark 5:33. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. By overcoming her fear, we see another demonstration of Jesus' power, this time over sickness. Go, your faith has made you well. And at that very moment, Jesus is hurrying with Jairus, the synagogue leader, to the bedside of his sick daughter. And yet, in the next verse, we see the beginning of another miracle. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. This final miracle, then, is a demonstration of Jesus' power over death itself, again accompanied by his encouragement, don't be afraid, just believe. Three stories, then, of fear and faith, three miracles performed upon men, women, and children, rich and poor, the powerful and the outcast. Jesus' power and authority is demonstrated over nature, over health, and ultimately over death itself. But we can hear stories and teaching about Jesus' power and authority, but it's easy to believe that they don't apply to us, because many times we are afraid that we are on the wrong side of the lake. It is for this reason our passage tonight is at the centre or part of this group of miracles, demonstrating Jesus' victory over battles fought in the spiritual realm, wars waged on the wrong side of the tracks. For this too is a story of fear and faith. The moment he sets foot on the wrong side of the lake, Jesus comes face to face with an outlandish type, an outlandish typecast, cartoonish picture of everything that a Jewish audience would fear. Isaiah 65 outlines this grotesque habitat. It talks of those who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me. Now we encounter just such a naked wild man living between the bodies of the dead and herds of pigs. But Jesus has not crossed the lake for a picnic, nor has he crossed it to judge. But to fulfil the promise at the beginning of Isaiah 65, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, Here am I, here am I. The man is on the wrong side of the lake, wild, naked, living outcast amongst the pigs and the graves, wracked by more than a thousand demons that refuse to be bound or shackled. He does not know. He cannot recognise Jesus' face, he cannot hear his voice, and he cannot possibly know of his ministry. But the demons immediately know exactly who has stepped onto their shore, and in this passage it is they who are afraid, very very afraid. In Mark 5, 7, we read, He, the man, shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. The demons knew Jesus' name, his title, and his identity. They know all this in Mark, chapter 5, long before it's revealed to the rest of us. They call upon God's name, appealing for mercy, and Jesus having been identified asked the demons for their name and it's not the man who answers my name is legion they he replied for we are many it sounds at first like a claim of strength instead of their name the demons declare their magnitude there are many but the evil that has bound this man and torn through metal chains is now begging for its very survival And he, they, begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. For the demons know that Jesus has authority over them, and we will see that again and again. They, the demons, are rightly afraid of that authority and are reduced to begging. Note how quickly they're willing to swap the flesh of the man that Jesus wants to save and live in the pigs. In the stories of fear and faith... The evil spirits alone are right to be fearful. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus. Notice they cannot change. They need his authority. Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And Jesus gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. The cartoon predicament of this man is replaced by the cartoon desperation, fear and defeat of his demons. Cast into the pigs is the worst possible humiliation and degradation, and drowning in the lake is the worst possible physical and spiritual death. Fear is the greatest weapon of our spiritual enemy. It enslaves us, it makes us feel worthless and renders us paralysed and powerless. Fear is the devil's trump card, his greatest weapon. Yet Jesus' detour to the wrong side of the lake shows it to be an almighty bluff. For the demons only know the power of fear because they live in perpetual fear of Jesus themselves. Whenever fear threatens to rob you of that assurance, to banish you to the wrong side of the lake we can have confidence that the only one who ever has reason to fear again after the cross is Satan himself. As John explains in 1 John 4, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And Jesus came that we may know just that sort of perfect, punishmentless love. Faith is not the naive absence of fear, but a steadfast hope and confidence in the power and love of a God in whom we can face any terror unafraid. We've seen demonstrated here in Mark 4 and 5, in a little over 24 hours in time and space, Jesus' power demonstrated over every circumstance, every situation and every realm. Authority and power over nature, over demons, over sickness and ultimately over death itself. Throughout, the geography, the gender, the genealogy mean nothing. And throughout, fear is the devil's favorite trap. Fear that Jesus will not come. Fear that you're not worthy. Fear that you are on the wrong side of the lake. Yet Jesus' authority reigns even on the darkest nights and on the furthest shores. So we can know for certain that even when the demons tell us it's too dark, he is coming. Even when they say that you're unimportant, he is coming. Even when the storm is raging, Jesus is coming. For there is no lake too wide, no night too dark, no storm too great. In the midst of the storm, in the throes of sickness, in the face of death and on the wrong side of the lake, Jesus will hold out his hands here am i and the whispering demons will flee in terror why are you afraid jesus asks the disciples go he tells the trembling woman your faith has made you well do not be afraid he tells jairus have faith The only time he does not and cannot reassure, the only characters living in judgment and rightfully afraid, are the demons he deals with mercilessly on the shore of the wrong side of the lake. The New Testament makes it clear that there are only three groups that I can find who have any reason to taste such fear. The demons, the Pharisees and hypocrites. And so, it is fear that I want to encourage the whole church to give up this fear. Lent. 2016 was a year dominated by fear, damaged by fear, divided by fear, defined perhaps by fear. In 2017, let's choose to worship without fear, to teach without fear, to serve without fear, to give without fear, and to love without fear. When we talk about changing lives, if you're jittery or jumpy, giving up caffeine might make a difference for a day or two. If you're piling on the pounds, maybe cutting down a little on the sugar or the cakes will shift some weight. If your social life is too crazy or you have too many friends, skipping deodorant will soon solve that. (laughs) But just imagine how radically and permanently different your life would look lived without fear. That night Jesus took a detour to the wrong side of the lake so that we all might know. Whoever you are, don't be afraid. Here am I. Wherever you are, don't be afraid, here am I. Whatever you have done, don't be afraid, here am I. For fear paralyzes our actions, divides our communities, limits our love and cripples our faith. As a church, we can only be faithful, worshipful, grateful and hopeful when we are fearless. This Lent permit Jesus to completely change your life. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Amen.